Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters. This week on Babel, John speaks with Dr. Jillian Schwedler about protests in Jordan. Then, John, Natasha, and I take a closer look at how protests fit into political life in Jordan, as well as elsewhere in the Middle East. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Jillian Schwedler is a professor of political science at the City University of New York's Hunter College. She is about to publish a book called Protesting in Jordan, Geography of Power and Dissent. She's also a non-resident fellow at the Brandeis Crown Center for Middle East Studies. Jillian, welcome to Babel. Thank you, John. I'm happy to be here. You've been studying political protests in Jordan for more than a decade. How are Jordanian protests different from the protests in other countries you've worked on, like Yemen and Iraq? Well, the biggest difference is that a lot of the protesters come from the regime's supposed loyal support base, and they speak of the social contract that was established with the first King Abdullah in 1921. And that arrangement led them to support the new regime in exchange for jobs and other kinds of development projects in their areas. Jordan had a major period of protest during the uprisings, but the significant difference was there wasn't agreement about changing the regime. A large part of the protests really want more regime. They want more jobs. They don't want the Hashimite regime to fall. They want the Hashimite regime to honor what they see as a social contract. That's a very different dynamic than you see in other parts of the region. In Jordan, you have a, a population that is in some ways split between East Bank Jordanians, that is descendants of the Bedouin tribes that were there and the Hashemites came up from the Hejaz, and people of Palestinian origin who came from the West Bank or other parts of, of Palestine in 1948 or subsequently. Do Palestinians and East Bank Jordanians protest in different ways? The significant difference that happens, it happens on on occasions when East Bankers are protesting for more jobs or against corruption in the outlying governorates. So, for example, in Amman, you see East Bankers and Palestinians protesting together around common issues, whether it's Israel-Palestine or jobs or against corruption. You'll find them mixed together. Those protests are very orderly and peaceful. Very rarely is there property damage. The people that organize them are largely activists, members of political parties across the political spectrum, the professional associations. They're very careful. They don't plan damaged property. They're very careful to be respectful. In the outlying governorates, when they're making demands on the regime, demanding more jobs and, and of corruption, they very often go back to a repertoire that goes back to the 19th century, which is they will block roads, set things on fire, damage government property, burn down government buildings, go after government vehicles. That's a repertoire that doesn't exist in the capital for the most part. The value added of my book going back so far is you see these consistent repertoires. They did the similar kinds of things. They weren't calling for an end of Ottoman rule. They simply thought that they were being taxed too much or that the Ottomans had overstepped their boundary. In one instance, the Ottomans were asking local women to carry them water, and the men rioted in rebellion because they thought this was unacceptable. So they would write up a petition, send it to either Damascus or Istanbul, demanding that that change. 
So if you look at those patterns, you see those are the very patterns that still exist in those areas. And in fact, they talk about a lot of these rebellions that go back, rebellions under the Ottomans, the Kora Rebellion, the Shabak Rebellion, as well as ones that happened after the Hashemites arrived in the 1920s. So they have this repertoire. In response to these protests, the government can try to co-opt the protesters. It can try to coerce the protesters. How does the government decide between those options and have the choices changed over time? Typically, there's a combination of responses. There's efforts to divide the people that are protesting. If it's the Harak organizations in the South or if it's a particular movement, they'll often try to co-opt a number of individuals, appeal to other powerful tribal leaders to call for calm and divide them. But also they're responsive. Jordanians believe, and I think they're right, that the most effective way to bring about reform is through protests, because protests actually bring responses. They've won jobs through protests. There was an instance they were protesting the lack of water, and the king himself went out there to visit to promise them that tankers of water were on the way. And they said, we don't want that. We want piped water. And they actually got piped water to their village in the next month. So protests are actually fairly effective. But the regime response then is to try to co-opt some individuals, offer prominent organizers, government positions, for example, arrest certain activists that are seen as too unruly or cross the boundary and criticize the regime or the king directly, and provide some financial response, whether it's offering jobs, cash payments to local notables, moving a development project from one area into that area. So protests in the East Bank areas do really bring results. Again, many of the big protests in Amman are issue-based about canceling the peace treaty or anti-austerity measures. How has the rise of social media affected protest movements in Jordan? Are there more leaderless protests that are largely spontaneously led by disaffected people? Or are most protests still led by organized groups with clear grievances and clear goals? I think you can divide the protests into three clusters. You have the Iraq or East Bank protests that are largely locals organizing around a particular issue for jobs or water or what have you. And those are basically emerged from the community, not necessarily organized by a pre-existing group. Activists, political parties and professional associations will call for protests like the cancel the gas deal protest. And then you have the sort of massive spontaneous protests, which is what we're seeing now in Jordan. And those typically are around Israel-Palestine. There were similar protests around the Iraq war, so these external conflicts that they erupt in solidarity. The only massive spontaneous protests that you find that are about domestic issues in Jordan are the anti-austerity protests, protests in opposition to the lifting of subsidies. We saw this in 1989, with those protests in Jordan are called the Hebit Nisan because it was the month of April, Nisan, and they remember that as a massive uprising that effectively led King Hussein to liberalize the country. So from that moment, there came a realization that change could be realized in part through massive protests. We saw these again, less a lesser scale in 1996, but at the tail end of the uprising period in November 2012, the Hebit Tishrin protests, which were against the lifting of prices of electricity, 2018 massive nationwide protests, initially against revisions to the tax law, but then also extending to broad opposition to austerity, to neoliberalism, protest chants will chant against the World Bank and the IMF directly, saying, you know, who's ruling our country? The IMF is ruling our country. 
So you have those kind of sectors to just to summarize the sort of East Bank isolated localized protest, protest nationwide organized by activists around specific issues. And then these periodic massive outbursts that bring everybody to the street, either about foreign wars and conflict or about anti-austerity measures. People do a lot of creative things. Petitioning still remains significant and had remained significant. They circulate, you know, manifestos and black papers criticizing regime and those get a lot of attention. Social media, especially since 2009, when Twitter and Facebook became available in Arabic, coincided, of course, with the spread of smartphones. Um, Prior to that, they did use cell phone short message service to coordinate during protest. But it really changed and this changed with the combination of social media and smartphones where you could not just coordinate, but you could upload images. Everybody could record everything. And it's just a treasure trove of that. One of the most remarkable features of the uprising period across the region was precisely that. Not that these were Twitter, Facebook revolutions, but that information could be shared widely. External media could be accessed easily. So people were following things on Al Jazeera. And so the protest space became a different kind of space because it included virtual space. Now, of course, these are also resources for governments because they can monitor people, intercept plans, track networks of activists and who's doing what. And Jordan, like many countries, has introduced and then amended a cyber crimes law, which extends the provisions of several other laws that it is illegal to criticize the king, illegal to criticize the royal family, illegal to do anything that could destabilize or threaten relations with a friendly country, which means you can't criticize Israel, you can't criticize the United States, etc. And you can't post something that could create national anxiety. So these are so broad that basically anything falls into that. So people post things on social media that they get arrested for. They post themselves speaking out against the king at protests, and then they get arrested for that. Last August, we saw the arrest of the famous Jordanian cartoonist, Imad Hejaj, because he posted on his website a cartoon that mocked the Abraham Accords. And he was arrested and detained and charged with terrorism for posting that cartoon. So he's a high profile enough figure. There was an international campaign. The government was embarrassed. He was released. He's still being charged and prosecuted, but they've dropped the terrorism charge. If you're prominently connected from a prominent tribe and you post something, you'll still get arrested and harassed, but there'll be an outcry and you're very likely to get released. You might still get charged, but you're likely to get released. But people that aren't so well connected don't have that advantage. And so there's an environmental anti-nuclear activist named Basil Bergan who has been arrested. He was in detention for several weeks two years ago. They're basically pressuring people to stop doing business with his drugstore. And this pressure has been continuing for several years. And what is his offense? He posted on Facebook a report by a former Jordanian nuclear engineer that suggested there was a leak in a Jordanian nuclear plant. And he wrote, if this is true, this is a catastrophe. He discovers very quickly that it's not true. It's in fact, it was about a test. So it didn't actually happen. And he withdraws it immediately and says, thank God this didn't happen. He's arrested for posting something that created national anxiety, and he's being prosecuted under the cyber cyber crimes law. Now, mind you, that rumor had been widely in circulation already. They were simply looking for a reason to arrest him, and he's from a very small Christian tribe. He's not from a prominent family, so there he sits, a completely absurd arrest. 
How do Jordanians think about political change, given what they see going on elsewhere in the Middle East? Have what they've seen elsewhere in the Middle East sort of taken the bloom off the prospect of political change? Particularly coming out of the uprising period, that's exactly what happened. So after those massive anti-austerity protests in November of 2012, which were put down violently, a lot of the activists were divided on whether to call for protests again, whether to try to get people back into the street, precisely because some of the other countries were descending into violent conflict and that didn't look so exciting. In 2012, particularly leftist and progressive activists were very nervous about the Muslim Brotherhood coming to power in Egypt. And a third factor really split the opposition, which was the Syrian conflict. A lot of people had admired the Syrian government for its anti-imperial stance, its strong anti-Israeli stance. And so they had no rose-tinted glasses about its atrocities, but they admired that portion of it. Now, as Syria descends into civil war, there's a conundrum. Because you see this regime is doing monstrous things. It's looking less and less like a civil war of people versus regime than a proxy war. And so a lot of you know leftists were divided over it. Some activists moved to Damascus and stayed there. It ended friendships. It ended some movements. And it really put a dampening on protests of the level that called for reform. That has mostly disappeared. So you had several years of relative calm, not a lot of discussions of protests. Since 2017, 2018, there's been much more appetite for returning to the streets. There were the massive anti-austerity protests. There were a protest later in 2019 under the title Manash, which was East Bankers coming. They would come and protest in the capital. And this was actually an innovation as well. Most of the East Bank protests prior to the uprisings were in their local areas. And with the uprisings, you saw activists increasingly interconnected, getting to know each other, traveling to the capital. And then through 2019, you saw these protests to march for work where they would come from as far as Aqaba. Uh, One in particular made a big splash. They marched from Aqaba, picked up unemployed along the way, and they all walked to the capital to protest. And it was quite an event. And people gave them shelter along the way and blankets and cheered them on. And they won jobs. And so that only increased that as a protest tactic, a new innovation, like let's walk to the Capitol instead of demanding jobs and complaining in our hometowns, let's go to the Capitol directly. And typically there'd be a lot of protests at Parliament, downtown Amman at the Husseini Mosque, because that used to be the center of government offices. But outside of the downtown area, you see protests either at embassies, at Parliament, or at the Fourth Circle Interchange, which is where the office of the Prime Minister is. These protesters are going to the royal court downtown. So they're not making demands on the government. They're making demands on the regime, on the royal family. You need to provide for us. And again, there is constant talk of the social contract is being violated. Well, let's keep the Hashemite regime, but would Hamza be better at honoring the social contract that was made 100 years ago that we feel King Abdullah is not honoring? I haven't seen a lot of reports of COVID-related protests. Although Jordan had some very, very strict quarantine-like restrictions last spring, the restrictions were lifted and the infection rate went very high. Was it surprising to you that Jordan wasn't convulsed by protests over that issue or did it seem to fit a pattern? Jordan did have a very severe lockdown that was lifted after a couple of weeks and could leave a few hours a day and it was fairly effective. Protests did reemerge pretty quickly, but 
not in the same forms they had taken place before. So on one street, there is a massive medium that's supposed to be for rapid transit. So cars can't drive down it and it's not completed. So it's basically empty. So the Muslim Brotherhood organized a protest there against the deal of the century, standing in the media, social distance apart, but had the visual effect of people driving for miles could see these people lined up on this long row against the Abraham Accords. People did take to the street. For COVID-related protests, there were only a few. The most significant ones were against when several patients died in a hospital insult because of lack of oxygen. People broke out nationwide in protest against that. And then there were people protesting the anniversary of the March 24th youth, which was in 2011, a small encampment of a few hundred that tried to create an ongoing sit-in like Tahrir, again, calling for reform, making very clear it was not challenging the king, but that was violently dispersed after one day. And so on March 24th, this year was the 10th anniversary. There were protests in commemoration of that. And there were a lot of arrests around that protest, including arrests for violating social distancing and not wearing masks. You've spent a lot of time looking very deeply into protests in Jordan. What are the more universal conclusions you've drawn about protests throughout the region based on your deep understanding of the protest movement in Jordan? Well, I'm hoping that my book has some insights that travel globally about protests. The level of state repression is often contingent on who is protesting and what they're protesting about. What my book shows, it also is where people are protesting. So there's protests in certain areas, like around the Kaluti Mosque, the sort of anti-normalization with Israel protests, Anytime there's a campaign like there is now, people will pour out there that have their own kind of routine where you show up here and the police line up there and you don't actually try to march on the Israeli embassy. You symbolically try to march on the Israeli embassy, because if you were really trying to march on the Israeli embassy, you wouldn't assemble exactly where the government expects you to assemble. You would do something different. So there's these certain routines. And as long as you adhere to what the police expect you to do you can be pretty sure they're going to use relative restraint. The crowds try to push the boundary sometimes. So there are tensions and clashes. Downtown, Grand Husseini Mosque has a routine. You assemble at the Grand Husseini Mosque, you give some speeches, you march to the municipal center in Ras Ain, you give some speeches there, and you go home. The things the government will not allow are encampments. There used to be people would put up tents periodically. Now putting up tents is very hostile act. And so you have these almost comedic struggles over tearing down tents and putting them back up and tearing down tents and putting them back up. If you take those insights that certain spaces have their own repertoires for protest that might be less aggressively policed as long as the activists sort of honor the red lines of that space, I think those are kinds of practices that you could investigate in other places. Are there places where it's okay to protest, but if you deviate from that, you're going to get met with violent repression. A lot of that tends to map on neighborhoods. Wealthier neighborhoods have different means of being policed than in poorer neighborhoods. A lot of poorer neighborhoods, you can protest all you want. You might meet repression, but as long as you don't leave that area, fine, just have at it. However, you decide you want to march to Wall Street or someplace symbolically important or a major upscale neighborhood, they really try to prevent you from ever assembling in the first place. So I think those kinds of insights can travel to other places globally and not just in the Middle East. And it sounds like you're talking about a, a very 
elaborate ritual of protest where each side understands the anticipated actions of the other, as long as each side understands what the boundaries are for it, the other side respects it. And, and this becomes an ongoing part of the political process. There's a symbolism involved and there's a response involved. I agree. And this is why Jordanians see protests as one of the ways to enact change. There is a side to it that's interesting that when there are massive protests, the government will ask for the resignation of the prime minister, appoint a new one, and call for national dialogue to investigate the situation. That happens so frequently that people scoff at it. They're like, okay, great, new prime minister, national dialogue, nothing's going to change, the legislation's going to go through anyways. But they'll return to the street because the streets do bring responses on many issues. Julian Schwedler, thank you for joining us on Babel. Thank you so much, John. My pleasure. Next up, John, Natasha, and I take a closer look at how protests fit into political life in Jordan, as well as elsewhere in the Middle East. What did you find most surprising about Schwedler's findings? The thing that I found most surprising was that there were these different sects of protests. So you had the East Bankers that are the traditional loyalist branch of the monarchy that were able to engage in protests and sometimes even get a bit violent or destructive, but they were sort of protected by the monarchy anyways. And their protest aims were quite concrete. It came to usually austerity measures and jobs and things like that. But once you went from that realm to the less traditional base of support for the monarchy, that's when people started to get into trouble. That's when people either got arrested or detained. And I thought that that was sort of an interesting dichotomy. And it made me wonder what's going to happen now after this recent palace intrigue with Prince Hamza, where you see the solid East Bank support for the monarchy actually kind of straying a bit away from King Abdullah. And I do wonder what that means for the future of these protests, which before just a few weeks ago had been somewhat protected by the monarchy and by the security apparatus. What I found most surprising is that people have been protesting in this manner in Jordan for longer than the Hashemites have ruled Jordan. The Hashemites have been there for 100 years, but these protests according to Jillian, have been going on for more than 150 years in the same manner. In some ways, the rulers adapted to the public instead of the public adapting to the rulers. And that strikes me as uh, an important finding. Schwedler described a lot of performance in Jordanian protest culture, with protesters and authorities alike playing the roles expected of them. What are other examples of political performance in other countries? Well, it seems to me the most common in the Middle East is people performing in favor of a government or protesting things that the government wants them to protest. And we've certainly seen sort of orchestrated anti-Israeli protests in Middle Eastern governments. Certainly in Syria, we're seeing a supposed public display of affection for Bashar al-Assad as he runs for, for re-election. In many ways, there's a sense that political behavior is very scripted and protests in favor of something or against something is not a spontaneous display of people's beliefs. It's an expected display. And sometimes if your presence is not there or not felt, that will also get you into trouble because that is a sense of protest. And you actually saw this in East Germany as well, because you had all of these youth groups and things like that. And if you weren't there, if you weren't showing up to the neighborhood event or the community event, 
then you were suspect because you might be opposed to the regime. And I think you saw that as well in Syria and other countries in, in the Middle East as well. It was also a way to gauge your loyalty. And one of the really interesting things that Schwedler points out about Jordan is coming out to protest isn't seen as a sign of opposition to the regime. It is a sign of participating in the way the regime likes to engage with its public. So in your judgment, is Jordan's protest tradition a form of democracy or a persistent testing of the limits of autocracy? In a system like Jordan, where you have a parliament, but with very watered down powers, I think it can be a form of democracy in the sense that they are sort of testing the limits of an autocracy to a certain extent, usually in a peaceful way. So there's only a limit to to what they can get through elections, for example, which is why you see very low turnouts for those types of elections. And you might see higher turnouts for protests, for example. But I think that there are a lot of limits to this. And Jillian talked about that. So once you get outside of the realm of economic austerity measures, or if you start talking about Jordan's allies, or dare I say it, the king himself or the monarchy, that's where you start running into roadblocks. And I think that in order for the government to be able to start building stronger levels of trust with their population as they have to move forward with reforms, there's going to need to be a different model in place because there's only so many times that the government can sort of water down reforms or kick the can down the road, especially when it comes to economic austerity measures and jobs in the public sector and things like that. And the other piece to this, of course, is the protest form of redressive grievances is only available to a minority of Jordan's population. The way Jillian described it, it is a way East Bank Jordanians get redress of grievances, but a majority of Jordanian citizens don't come from the East Bank. They're from the West Bank. And it seems to me that this is in some ways another form of privilege that some Jordanians have over other Jordanians. And that would suggest it really is more a form of autocracy than a a modified form of democracy. To my mind, it's their form of democracy in the sense that I don't think anyone would argue, despite Jordan having a parliament, that it's a truly democratic process. And I'm not convinced that people have huge amounts of faith in their elections or in the people that they elect to implement things that they really want. And so in a sense, it struck me that Schwedler's understanding of the protests being true to form for quite some time, their protests are in a form their elections as we see them, in the sense that you can reliably assume that you might get something, provided you're part of that privileged minority. But also, it's I mean, it speaks to the limits of an elected parliament, too. We just published a report called Sustainable States, and one of the cases that we look into is a natural gas deal that was signed with Israel, which met with a lot of popular protests, but also protests from within the parliament. And the parliament was demanding to see more clarity, more transparency when it came to the deal. There was a lot of suspicion and the head of the government, let's say, just refused and and pushed the deal through and said that this isn't an issue for the government to deliberate on because it is a deal between two companies rather than a deal between two countries. And that's kind of the way that they played it. But it also shows that even these elected officials have very strong limits on their power to actually accomplish anything. I think you have to look at that two ways. One is Jordan demonstrates that every protest movement is not the seed of revolution and doesn't have to be 
repressed vigorously. And, and to my sorrow, a lot of governments in the Middle East see any sign of discontent as the possible beginning of revolution they crack down. I think Jordan benefits from, from giving people some space to express frustration. On the other hand, this pattern of protest commits Jordan to spending money, subsidizing the people who are protesting. And if they want more, they just protest more. And it gets you into this entitlement trap that draws increasing amounts of resources from the treasury. And it feels to me like part of the downside of this protest pattern is that it's a proven way to increase entitlement spending, whether or not the government has the fiscal space to do so. And in that way, it, it almost becomes a way that people can tax the government rather than vice versa. I think that there are also limits because the East bankers traditionally have been part of the public sector, whether that's the security apparatus or whether that's actual civil government jobs. And they've seen Palestinians, for example, sort of held out of that realm. And subsequently, they've been pretty successful in the private sector, which has actually been more profitable for many people. And I think that there are limits to what can be provided within the public sector now. You have very low public sector wages. And even if there's tiny increases in those wages or there's more public sector jobs, it's still not going to necessarily meet the demands of tomorrow, especially in a country with really skyrocketing cost of living. In what ways does the rise of social media and the advent of leaderless protests challenge the dynamics Schwebler describes? Well, it seems that the part of the pattern she talks about has to do with the palace then going to tribal leaders and people in authority and say, okay, call off the people and, and we'll work with you. There's a way in which the government, because of the pattern of protest, has a way to negotiate its way out of the protests with more leaderless protests, with more spontaneous protests. In some ways, there's a less clear set of demands, but even more, there's nobody who can stop them. And that puts the government in an awkward position of not being able to make a deal. And in some ways, if you have 100 different views of people protesting, you have 100 different people who are judging the government's met the deal, hasn't met the deal, we can call off the protest and it can be more threatening to the government because it seems like there's no end. It seems like the government doesn't really have alternatives. And I think it can be much more frustrating to the people because there's nobody to coach them and say, okay, we've gotten enough. If anything, leaderless protests tend to drive people toward making more ambitious claims and driving attention to people who are maximalist rather than minimalist. There's a way in which Jordan's tradition of protest and tradition of working through powerful intermediaries pushes you more toward the minimal side of protest. As she mentioned, it also creates a much more diverse opposition movement in which there are going to be people that aren't protected. She did mention a Christian who has been detained and does not have those protections. I mean, my family as well. I think most of my family was in jail, a very infamous desert prison called Jafar. Between the 50s and 60s, we did not have that sort of protection. That was the the summer camp, but it went on for 10 years for a lot of people, for a lot of opposition figures in Jordan. And I do wonder what's going to happen with social media if the government isn't able to sort of clamp down on it like other countries have in the Middle East, what that will mean for the protest movements in the future and how Jordan will 
curb that kind of opposition, the opposition that it can't control necessarily, that it can't respond to with watered down austerity measures or more public sector jobs, things that are less concrete can oftentimes be much more threatening to a regime. And one of the interesting things I found is Jillian described a history that goes back 150 years. I don't think she would be confident projecting it will go forward for another 150 years. As Natasha suggests, there may be aspects of social media. There may be aspects of the changing nature of politics. That means that this sort of safety of these kinds of protests may be endangered, partly as Jordan's population becomes more diverse and partly as the nature of politics changes that that will work in the past may not work as well in the years to come. And I think to your point as well, a leaderless protest is harder for the government to reckon with, but also runs the risk of becoming a mob in the sense that Schwedler mentioned occasionally at these protests, you'll have some people who will charge the barricade and create problems. And if there's no one to rein in the protests, then perhaps you run the risk of that happening much more often. That's absolutely right. John and Natasha, thank you for joining me. Thanks for listening to Babbel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSIS website, and you can find us on Twitter at CSIS Mideast.